0: That's solid. That's not veneer, that's solid stuff.
1: Progressive can't save you from becoming your parents, but we can save you money when you bundle home and auto. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discounts not available in all states or situations.
2: An experiment gone wrong. A warship that tried to disappear. The only way back is forward, my friends, because this week we're listening to Ours Paradoxica, the time travel show where the year ain't nothing but a number. Later, we'll talk with the creators of Ars Paradoxica, Dan Manning and Misha Stanton. It's all here on Radio Drama Revival. You say tomato, I say deadly nightshade. Welcome to Radio Drama Revival, the podcast that showcases the diversity and vitality of modern audio fiction. Brought to you by Wondery. I'm your host, David Reinstrom, and have I got a treat for you, mes amis. We are going to take a listen to one of the hottest new shows to hit the pod waves in recent memory. I'm telling you, it is an embarrassment of riches up in here. When I took over this show, I spoke of a Cambrian explosion of storytelling going on in the podcast medium right now. And I am so happy to keep on seeing new and interesting shows by thoughtful, clever, and competent people. So... Our's Paradoxica is a show about time travel, fundamentally. It's about time travel, government secrets, friendship, betrayal, love, and physics. It's also meant to be enjoyed sequentially, and the more I say about the show, the more I risk spoiling things with my big fat mouth. So, why don't we settle on into the feature, shall we? Without further ado, let's take a listen to Season 1, Episode 1 of Our's Paradoxica. Hypothesis. (laughs)
3: Testing 1-2. Okay. This is the audio diary of Sally Grissom. The date today is... (laughs) Hell, does it even matter? Uh, It's October 29th. 1943, I guess. For me, that's the day after August 14th, twenty. So, whatever that means... This recorder is (laughs) enormous. When they were getting my room here set up for me, they asked if I wanted a journal for my thoughts. I don't much like written journals, so I told them I wanted to record my voice instead. I much prefer hearing my thoughts out loud. I guess I was imagining some kind of handheld deal, not like this monstrosity on my desk, but I'm glad they brought it. I need to keep a record of my thoughts here. They're more jumbled than they've ever been. Let me start from the beginning. I was in my lab at the SSC. I'm a resident physicist there, the face in front of a small team of other researchers working to build an array of these generators that canceled out the Higgs mechanism. This thing was our baby. We had poured countless hours, sleepless nights, and about nine figures into this thing. After a solid year of work... We were finally ready to test it. So there I am on the day of the test, and my hands are shaking with anticipation as I placed the test mass, a kilogram of platinum, on a pedestal in the center of the array. As the array began to spool up, vibration knocked the cylinder onto the floor. I left the observation room to go put it back on its pedestal. I remember one of my assistants asking if I wanted them to stop the test. I told them not to waste time letting the generator spin down and then back up. I actually said that it won't do any harm. Yeah, sure. Won't do any harm. The generators hit critical energy faster than they should have. Just as I placed the test mass inside the array, I heard this loud hum and a crackle of electricity. I remember this smell like ozone and the taste of iron in the back of my throat. I tried to look out to my assistants, but their outlines had gone blurry. A a bright light crashed across the whole room. Uh, For just a second, the world went black and white and red. Then the light got brighter, hotter, whiter, and whiter. It filled my whole vision. The next thing I knew, I was lying on the deck of a huge boat. My head was full of white noise. I was dizzy and shivering cold. The contents of my breakfast were spread out in front of me. It wasn't my best moment. I must have stayed a good five, six minutes, half conscious, on the cold metal floor before anyone found me. I remember a pair of hands checking my pulse, uh, making sure I was breathing. That first pair of hands called for a second, and before long, I had a whole... uh, What do you call a bunch of Navy guys? A crew? A squad? A sloop? A swearing? Yeah, that's it. A swearing of sailors surrounded me. Most of them spoke in hushed tones to each other. One of them, with authority ringing in his voice, came and ordered the rest to take me to the brig. At least I think that's what he said. Something like that. I don't remember the exact words. I was pretty out of it. But that was definitely his tone. The first sailor, the one who checked to see if I was alive, he refused, said I should be taken to the sick bay. One of them asked if I could walk. Walk, I meant to say? I can barely stand. Who are you people, anyway? I demand to talk to someone in charge. Well, I meant to say all that. As I was, I just sort of, uh, wobbled on my feet, mumbled a bit, and puked all over the nearest sailor. A few of them scooped me up and carried me down to the lower depths of the ship. So, uh, sidetrack, when I was young, my parents took me to see the USS Intrepid in New York City. It's a docked aircraft carrier from World War II that had been retired and then renovated into a sea, air, and space museum. The lunar lander was there, and my parents had wanted me to see the capsule my grandfather had landed on the moon in. But back to the ship. Once my vision cleared a bit, and I could finally see where I was, I remembered thinking that this ship looked almost exactly like what I remembered. Except that here, the controls weren't sealed behind plexiglass. The one thing I couldn't recall was the holding cell, it was just a cage a closet with bars stuffed in the corner of one room and no more than five feet across. The sailors put me down as gently as they could, locked the door shut, and left. I lay there for a while, moving as little as possible, holding my throbbing head, uh, trying to stop the room from spinning, maybe even trying to wake myself up from this terrible dream. Finally, after what seemed like an hour but was probably more like ten minutes, I heard a voice from inside the room. Evidently, one of the sailors had stayed behind. That first one. The one that cared whether or not I was still alive. He was quiet and calm, like the sea after a storm. He said me, At the
2: turn, the time will be twelve...
4: Forty-five, ma'am. Excuse me, ma'am. Can you hear I... me? <gasps> take it easy. It just take it easy. Don't worry, ma'am. You'll be all right. The director's on his way out here now, and he's gonna uh... want to talk to you. Rest up. Save your strength.
3: Where, where, where am I?
4: You're in Philadelphia, ma'am. Or, I suppose, just off the coast of Philadelphia? On a ship? Yes, ma'am. You're aboard a cannon-class destroyer escort. Most days we're running men and materials to the Allied fronts. Today we're... well, we're doing something different.
3: Different?
4: Well, ma'am, I can't tell you much. It's all classified way above my pay grade, but I guess you must know... Some army scientists have taken over operations this week, run over the ship like ants on a picnic.
3: Must know?
4: Well, sure. Isn't that what you're doing here?
3: Not, um... I'm not sure what I'm doing here.
4: Well, you went through an awful lot of trouble getting past our security. How'd you manage that, by the way?
3: No. No, I was... I was in my lab. My machine. There was a bright light, and I... You
4: should save your story for when the director gets here.
3: It's not a story. It's true. I'm a scientist. A physicist. I was working in my lab, and this generator, it must (laughs) have...
4: Calm down, please. Save your strength. Here. Drink some water. Thank you. What's your name? Sally. Petty Officer Chet Whitman. Nice to meet you. Now listen, ma'am... Doctor. Sure. Okay, doc. Listen, whatever your story is, I believe you. I saw what happened. I was there on the deck when we turned our machine on. There was a big flash of white. Our thing did its thing, and then the light faded, and you were lying on the deck. I saw you appear out of nowhere. I don't know enough about it to know what they were doing. I just sailed the ship, but I know it's something weird. For all I know, you're some ordinary lady minding your own. Hell, maybe you're working with us on some other government science project.
3: I'm not with the army. I told you... But
4: it doesn't matter. Because the director, he's got to act as if you're a spy that snuck on board to steal his project. You dropped yourself into a whole mess of top secret, ma'am, and you're not leaving the Eldridge until he talks to you and finds out everything you know. So take it easy. I'm real sorry, but... I've got a feeling you're in for a long day.
3: They kept me in that cell for five hours. I couldn't stretch my arms, and my head was still spinning and pounding from the inbound trip. I asked for a Dramamine, and all I got was a confused look from Wickman. Apparently, they don't have that here. They carried me up to the interrogation room, and just about the time that my head stopped spinning, in walked the director. He was the utter image of a G-man. Large build, a square jaw, hair slicked down to within an inch of its life, well-worn black suit, white shirt, black tie. Like someone out of a movie. His smile never wavered. And the lines on his face told me he'd practiced that smile a million times before.
0: What's your name, little girl?
3: Fuck you. That's my name.
0: <laughs> See? And here I was, perfectly ready to assume your cooperation. I was going to sit here, smile politely, ask a few questions, and we'd be done. You'd be off on your merry way. But you've decided to be hostile. So now I have to treat you like a hostile captive. And hostile captives don't get treated well on my ship. They get strung up like a carcass in a butcher's shop. They get questioned at the end of a hot poker, and they leave screaming in agony, or quietly sobbing, broken and torn. Now, does that sound like very much fun to you? No, me neither. So, should we try again? What's your name? Sally. Nice to meet you, Sally. My name's William Donovan. Friends call me Bill.
3: Nice ship you got here, Bill.
0: See? Friends already. Thank you. It's a modest little escort, but it was on hand to do the work we needed. Where are you from, Sally? The U.S. Can you be a little more specific, honey? No. Now, I've told you what happens if you don't cooperate.
3: Not if you're going to keep calling me honey and little girl. It's Dr. Grissom, and I'm not just going to sit here and be talked down to just because I'm a woman and you've got me locked up.
0: I'm sorry, doctor. You're absolutely right. Now please, can you tell me where you're from?
3: I'm from all over the country. Grew up on a farm in Iowa. Went to school in the Northeast. I've been working in Texas for the past few years.
0: Where in Texas?
3: Waxahatchie.
0: Waxa what?
3: <laughs> Waxahachie. Near Dallas.
0: And what do you do out there in Waxahatchie, Texas?
3: I'm a physicist. I'm working on the SSC. What's that? The... The superconducting supercollider? The big particle accelerator? Biggest in the world, right near Dallas? Isn't this a military science division? Who
0: told you that?
3: That sailor. The one that brought me up here. Wickman.
0: Good kid. Smart. Sure does talk a lot, though. Where'd you go to school, Dr. Grissom? MIT. MIT, as in the Massachusetts Institute of Technology?
3: I'm not sure how many other MITs there are, but yeah, MIT. Why?
0: I'm just impressed. I've never met a woman with a doctorate from MIT before. Very impressive.
3: Um, thank you?
0: So, doctor, in your expert opinion, how do you think you ended up on my ship?
3: I'm not sure. I was working with a machine in my lab, It was supposed to negate the Higgs field, localized to a specific... In English,
0: please, doctor. Not all of us have degrees from MIT.
3: It canceled out one of the fundamental forces of the universe. And I kind of... got in the middle of it. So I get why something happened to me, but why I ended up on your ship, I don't know. Can you tell me any more about what you guys are working on here? Maybe something between the two?
0: Nice try. Bill, I... Listen... Dr. Sally Grissom from Iowa, or whoever you are, I'm done playing games here. Who are you working for?
3: I told you, I work for the SSC. The SSC? I see, and
0: how much would they have paid you if you had brought our plans back to Germany? Germany?
3: What are you talking about?
0: Doctor, I know for a fact that what we're doing here is on the bleeding edge of scientific discovery. The stuff we're doing here... It sounds like something straight out of Astonishing Tales. It's amazing. It's powerful. It's dangerous. And I will see myself burning in hell before I let Adolf and his Kraut goons get his hands on this technology.
3: Adolf? Krauts? What is this, World War II? It
0: sure ain't the revolution, sweetheart. And we have come a long way since then. Plenty of new ways to keep someone locked up. To keep them in agony until we learn every Nazi secret that you've got in that pretty little head. What's the date? What?
3: The date. The date today. Please, before you lock me up and throw away the key, torture me until I'm a bloody goddamn stump rotting away in the cage for the rest of my days, just tell me, what is today's date?
0: An odd last request.
3: Please. Bill. Please.
0: It's October 28th.
3: 1943. Oh, no. (laughs) Its official designation is Project Rainbow. But I've only ever heard it called the Philadelphia Experiment. An urban legend, or so I thought. The story goes that the military was testing some kind of cloaking device to shield ships from enemy radar. It went back to some of Einstein's formulas. But when they turned it on... There was a bright flash of light, and then the ship was gone. Some said it had turned invisible. Some said it had disappeared altogether. In any case, clearly some weird science happening. And so, their weird science plus my weird science equals time travel? I don't know. I'm still working it out. Once I had the director convinced that I wasn't a spy, they took me back to shore and put me on the next flight out west. The plane was so noisy, I could barely hear myself think, let alone ask any questions about where we were going. When I stepped off the plane, it was like I was slapped in the face with a wall of hot air. The sun was beating down on us from a cloudless blue sky, and the reflection off the desert nearly blinded me, and and I just started baking. I was pushed into a jeep, and we drove for about another two hours, and as much as I would ask... I couldn't get a word out of the director or the driver in that whole time. We just drove in silence for two hours. We drove for miles and miles further into the flat desert, further away from civilization. For maybe the barest second or two, I wondered whether they had decided to drag me out into the middle of nowhere and shoot me after all. Finally... About ten minutes before we arrive.
0: Here, read oh, sh-
3: this. You scared the hell out of me. Fall asleep? Y- yeah.
0: Not much to the scenery, I know. Flat for miles. Makes you sleepy. No shame. Not long now. Here, read this. What is it? It's a highly classified military profile on your new home.
3: My new. What do you mean? We are
0: rapidly approaching the town of Polvo, New Mexico. Population about six hundred square miles. It's not a town you'll find on any map. That's because the US government built it two years ago. Now the purpose of this little town is to provide a think tank for clever scientists. All run by the Office of Developed Anomalous Resources. ODAR. Here, removed from the rest of the American people, they can be free to think up new ideas for the war effort. Ideas like the machine we were testing today.
3: So you want me to join your scientist think tank?
0: Well, it's not that simple. You, you see, this town, the work that's done here, the people that live here, even the babies that are born here, it's all classified on a level so deep, barely a handful of men in the entire country know it even exists.
3: And that includes me. Bingo. So I'm a hostage.
0: A house to yourself, three squares a day, a town full of people just as smart as you are, and all the new gadgets the U.S. Army can buy. If that's a prison, sign me up.
3: But I can't refuse.
0: No, you can't.
3: And how long will I be kept there?
0: Win the war for us, and then we'll talk.
3: (laughs) And that was it. Now I'm trapped here, caged up like a zoo animal. Or one of those little grinder monkeys you see on the street. Dance, monkey, dance! There's a whole town out here in the middle of the desert. It seems kind of like what I've read about the Manhattan Project for other discoveries beyond the bomb. I don't know what everyone else is working on, but Donovan says he's particularly hopeful about my work, which is great, but super creepy, the way he says it. He says he's going to put me in charge of my own project, even get me some staff when he can pull them away from other projects. And I won't lie, that makes me nervous. I mean, I've read books about going into the past, changing small things. I just don't want to pull anyone away from anything that was going to have an impact on my history.
1: It's good to see you again, Director Donovan. I didn't know you were back in town. How did the rainbow test turn
0: out? I'm sorry if I'm curt, but I'm a bit busy today. Uh, All right. What can I do for you, sir? You're doing some really good work here,
1: but... Thank you. We're getting more precise every day. And I don't want to get in the way of your progress. Well, that's why you brought us all in. Because we're the best at what we do. Exactly, but... And I really appreciate the (sighs) freedoms you've given us here. I know some things need to stay classified and compartmentalized, but I appreciate the chance to collaborate with experts in fields I only barely understand. Practically the whole town has a hand in the project. Anthony, can I finish? Yes, sir. I'm sorry. It's just... I know I'm not going to like what you have to tell me. You wouldn't have brought me in like this if
0: it wasn't bad news. We're cutting funding to the Predictive Algorithms project. By how much? It's being reclassified as a Tier 3 project. Tier 3?
1: Director Donovan, sir, I know we're taking a bit longer than our original estimates, but we're a Tier 1 project. Hell, we are THE Tier 1 project. This is the cornerstone of
0: ODAR operations. I'm sorry. We're handing off the top tier to something new. Something new? Something new since last week? I'm afraid so. I'll need a list of non-essential personnel
1: on my desk by Wednesday. Non-essential? You're not just cutting our funding, you're firing people, too.
0: Actually, you're firing them.
1: You can't do that. These people signed a contract with the United States government that they'd be employed here until the end of the war. We've
0: been working on this for an entire year! The terms of the agreement have changed. Contracts can be terminated. Think of it as sending troops home early. They'll have to move again.
1: Find new jobs. What are they supposed to put on their resume? Work 1941 to 1943 at the organization Too Secret to Know? Don't tell anybody?
0: We'll make sure they can get any job they might want. Honestly, Anthony, they probably don't even need our help. Your boys are the best of the best. And they'll land on their feet. But we will charge them for treason, espionage, and conspiracy to murder bald eagles if they talk to anyone. Just as we would now.
1: What in God's name did you find in Philadelphia that could justify this? A new researcher brought us a new project. Oh, and he's replacing me. She's replacing you. I'm being ousted by a woman?
0: Are you kidding me? She gave us the answer. What are you talking about? What she's made. It will end the war. And it will end every other war before they even happen. That's what you said about predictive algorithms. I was wrong, Anthony. What you have is an idea. What I have now is a fact. Reality. Something I can hold in my hands. Something I can point to and say, this is the answer to all our problems. Every threat that our country will ever face. All you can give me is possibilities. But you're not scrapping the project entirely. Never have a plan without a backup plan. Prepare for every eventuality. Isn't that what you're going to help us do?
3: be all bad. And I really do want to figure out how I got here, more than anything. Maybe figure out how to get home. I just wish I had some kind of choice. As long as this project is a secret, he'll keep who I am a secret, at all costs. Which means I've got to keep who I am a secret, too. Which, I guess, might be okay. In the end, I'm always going to do the work. And Donovan's resources seem like the best way to do it. There's just so much more to the universe than I ever understood before. And I can't wait to figure it all out. So, as long as this experiment is running, let's treat it like one. <clears throat> Subject one Sally Virginia Grissom, age 27, born February 19th, 19, in Adams County, Iowa. Graduated, 20, 24- with a doctorate in theoretical physics from MIT. Resident physicist, SSC, for two years. Seven- years after this recording is made, an unknown space-time anomaly occurs involving a Higgs inhibitor array and a cloaking device known as Project Rainbow. Consequently, subject appears on the deck of the USS Eldridge on the afternoon of October 28, 1943, with nothing but the machine itself, one wallet, one cell phone, fried by the trip, and a one kilogram platinum tube. Subject is the universe's first time traveler. No, that sounds too melodramatic. Besides, I don't think I can really call anything first again. So, let me start over. My name is Sally Grissom, and I think I accidentally invented time travel. This is stupid. Wow, hold on. This is really dumb. I hate all of this. (laughs) I don't want to be here. I don't want to live in some secret town in the middle of the desert. I don't want to live in the 1940s. I just want to go home. I want to worry that I left the oven on. I want to get stuck in traffic. I want to stand paralyzed in the grocery store aisle, unable to tell the difference between Cheerios and the generic brand. I want my life back. And I want to charge my goddamn phone. But the rub of it is, I'm not even sure I can get home not unless I take the long way. Just in case anyone from my time finds this and you're wondering where I've gone, this is where I am. If you're looking, I'm not saying don't try to find me, but I will say that the odds are against you. And I hope you won't mind if I take a crack at getting home myself. I'm a smart girl. I'll figure it out.
2: 26, 6, 18, 4, 20, 26,
0: 1, fourteen, eleven, three, eight, six, 8, 26, 1,
2: 14, 15, 21, 3, The weather in Tulsa today is cloudy. And that was episode one of Ars Paradoxica. You can find the rest of the show by searching pretty much anywhere for A-R-S-P-A-R-A-D-O-X-I-C-A. As Misha says at the close of every show, if it's Ars Paradoxica, it's probably us. So I got the chance to chat with Dan and Misha, the co-creators of *Ours Paradoxica. I had a fabulous time talking with the two of them, and I imagine that comes through in our conversation. Let's take a listen. To hell with audio theater. Tell me about Bread. Oh, yeah, I, I don't know. I just podcast. looked for
5: Yeah, this is Breadcast. Breadpod.
2: Dan Manning, Misha Stanton, welcome to Radio Drama Revival. Thanks. It is a pleasure to have you on the show.
6: Thanks for having us. We love yeah. being
2: here. The two of you went to Emerson College in Boston together. Uh, Dan, you studied screenwriting. Misha, you studied audio engineering. Uh, among other things, you all studied a bunch of stuff. Uh, and you're best friends. And you used to live together in Cambridge, which is adorable and wonderful. And we'll get to the particulars of everything else. Um, but how did you first meet?
5: Well, uh, we lived on the same floor together when I was a freshman and Misha was a sophomore. Mm-hmm. And something like one of the first days, uh, I, was, I was hanging out in our common room and, and Misha comes in and leaves and does some work, and they put down their portable hard drive and said, hey, I'm going to go out. I'm going to go out and do things. This is my portable hard drive. There's a bunch of movies on there. If you all want to take some of it, I'm good. Uh, and I, I, I connected the hard drive to my computer, and I went through all of their, their stuff, and I was like, I like this. I like this guy. He's pretty great. <laughs> and uh, we've been friends ever since. That's really sweet. Yeah, it's it's actually really adorable. Uh, our When we lived in Cambridge, uh, we, had, we lived with... Uh, three other people, and we had this just really lovely brother-husbandship.
6: It was the most beautiful, adorable, sickening thing you've ever seen happen between four 20-something males. That's really cute. And also, I never
2: hear the phrase brother-husband. Sister-wife all the time. You know, I hear that all the time, but rarely brother-husbands. How did you both first get interested in audio drama?
6: I've been doing audio... For, geez, over half my life now. Mm-hmm. Um, I started doing um, tech theater, um, theater tech, uh, when I was 12 or 13. Um, I was at a summer camp where there was a lot of arts, Bucks Rock performing in Creative Arts Camp. It's really great. Uh, and where, where is that? Making? Oh, it's in uh, New Milford, Connecticut. Okay. Which was originally going to be um, Seligerson's hometown, but I changed it. I think, we ch- I think we changed it later. Uh, um, and I went to the summer camp, and it's got these f- fabulous um, facilities there. And a friend of mine um, told me that if I went to strike lights after one of the theater performances, uh, I got to stay out after put to bed. Okay. So I started doing lighting, and from there, uh, lighting and sound were in the same shop, so I jumped over to sound fairly quickly. Um, and I've just been doing sound and storytelling with audio for most of my life now, um, and so radio drama didn't feel like a huge leap.
2: So so this really just began out of an urge to avoid a curfew? Uh,
6: originally, yeah. That's awesome.
5: Me getting into writing came from, uh, when I was growing up, I really wanted to do science when I grew up. Just do okay. something science I I don't know. But then when I was, I don't know, a uh, junior in high school, I had one of those dead poet society level English teachers, mm-hmm. like stand up on table English teachers. And I said, No, I want to do art. And th- that may have been a bad decision, but it led me here, which I think is great. Uh, sure. What actually led me to specifically audio dramas was the show that would become Ours Paradoxica. I, I came to Misha with an idea to make a numbers station and put mm-hmm. it on our college and sneak it onto our college radio station late at night. And I recruited Misha to to help me with this, and we made that thing. And then we said, "Hey, let's do more of this," and we've never stopped since.
2: So let's talk about that number station. So you you broadcasted that for the first time. What was it, March third at three a.m. Uh, 2011 or so?
6: Actually, I think it was earlier. It was th- earlier than I think that. it was twenty. Uh, it was February, right?
5: No, it was. I remember it was three three at three a.m. No, but
6: that's when we put out creations oh, yeah. for the first time, no, which is uh, something else. Uh, okay, yeah. Um, the number station, I think, went out earlier than that. Um, okay. Um, Daniel just came at me, was like, hey, you know Lost? You like that show, right? Let's make one of those crazy number stations and put it on the air late at night and sneak in and like tell our friends and don't tell anybody else, and it'll just be really cryptic. And I said, that's everything I enjoy. <laughs> so we did it. Uh we ha- we recruited someone else on our floor to be the voice of the numbers. Uh it played for like 17 minutes at like 2 in the morning. How long was the message? Uh I think it repeated 3 times. So it was, okay. yeah,
5: maybe like a 5 or 6 minute message. Yeah. Okay.
6: And it and it had like uh it had a, like a bunch of lost references, it had inception references like weaved into the sound design of it.
5: Just a bunch of numbers, honestly. It was just a a weird perplexing thing. Because I realized, hey, no one's listening to this late at night. But what if they were? They weren't. (laughs) (laughs) But what if they were? Did the string of numbers mean anything? Oh, yeah. The string of numbers meant things. uh, But it was really mostly there to be cryptic, to be needlessly cryptic. Okay. Like, I I encoded messages into the numbers. But really, it was just supposed to be a number station. As number stations are, no one knows what they are. I mean, everyone knows what they are. It's spy stuff. But, like, Mm -hmm. no one knows what they're saying. And it wasn't until we decided to come back to the idea that we started saying, like, what is this? Like, why are they sending this weird uh, number station thing? And that's when we kind of got into time travel. Like, my original idea was a small desert town where things are just a little bit off. And there's a uh-huh. weird number station and then Welcome to Nightvale happened and I said, Oh, I can't do that.
6: Yeah, there is a number station in uh, Welcome to Nightvale, I
5: think. Yeah, there
6: is. W Z Z Z the Resident mm-hmm. Number Station.
5: That <laughs> episode dropped actually when the night that we saw the live Night vale, saw a live Nightvale show and handed our demo our demo of the show that would become ours Paradoxica to Joseph Crank oh Joseph no. Crank, Joseph Fink and Jeffrey Craner. Yeah.
6: It was sheer coincidence, but it was pretty funny.
5: Did
2: Did they ever get back to you about the the demo?
6: They did not. That was the beginning of their first world tour, and since then, I believe they've been touring the world. <laughs> yes. So I I don't blame them for not getting they back have to been us.
2: Very busy gentlemen. When did the time travel angle begin to seep into the like Was the was there a time travel um, story within that number station broadcast that you did, or did you start to build a story around that?
5: Our first. Uh, our our first number station thing didn't have any time y elements, but okay. when we decided to revisit it, I said, "Okay, now we need to. We have to actually put some lore here. We have to figure some things out." And I thought about what about time travel because uh, Misha and I are huge nerds, and I talked to them about that, and we created this like wacky story uh, about. Honestly, we really don't want to spoil too much because we we might come back to it yeah i don't want to spoil what that story was about but we did start with like oh there's the philadelphia experiment and there's we started with our weird science of how Mm -hmm. we started this with uh uh,
6: that's uh, that's not where we started i'll tell you okay that's that's not where not where we started there was there was um originally we didn't start with the 40s originally we started um in the 60s Okay. And we were doing alt history time travel stuff in the '60s, um, and then we did um, an alternate moon landing. Ooh. Yeah, and we just deci- okay. we decided you know, that was a pretty arbitrary part of what of the story we were telling. It was just kind of like a one off mention that that the moon landing was different. Um, how how was the moon landing different? Uh, different astronauts, okay.
5: and it occurred two years earlier.
6: Yeah, that too. Um, uh, so we did that, and then um, offhand I mentioned an astronaut who was a real astronaut, um, and uh, I, ju- I knew him from like a movie. There's a movie I really like that, that referenced him, uh, and that was Gus Grissom, and I-, I just referenced him offhand, and we put it into the show, and uh, we liked it, and we, came- we kept coming back to it, uh, and that's how we got to um, Sally Grissom.
2: Sally Grissom, who was originally going to be John Grissom, yes, right? and then you,
6: yes, and then one day I said, "But wait, what if this was a woman?" And mm-hmm. and the show was so much better for it. We had actually, I
2: think that's a question creators should ask more often. Yes,
5: we
6: think that's true too.
5: We actually had uh, original, we had an original actor for John, and he had fallen to, by the wayside. It turned out later that he wasn't super flaking on us. He got beat up by some cops and like had to oh go Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah.
6: Yeah, not Shy Tower.
5: Um. Uh, and, but we we had to replace him. And while we were in this lurch, we ended up re- uh, revising everything. Like, we had the first maybe four or five episodes written of the show. But at that time, it was called QDAM, and which is a just a mouthful of a name. If Ars Paradoxica is hard enough to say, four sure. letters that don't mean anything is even harder. And so we said, okay, it's, what
2: is... Yeah, what is QDAM?
6: Is it like quantum uh, like it's a, first wire? It's a uh, questions don't always matter. Oh. That's oh.
5: that actually wasn't our original idea, but someone said, hey, that also stands for questions don't always matter. So we said, <laughs> okay, that's now what it stands for. Because everyone asks what does what QDAM mean? And
6: then we stopped using that name, thank goodness.
5: <laughs> sure. <laughs>
6: um So yeah, so so it was John Grissom and we had two episodes recorded with Nash Hightower playing John Grissom, um, and then... And
5: actually, the, the guy who plays Jack Wyatt was playing Anthony Partridge.
6: Yeah, mm-hmm. that's true. Um,
2: that was, so that was before you got Robin?
6: That was before we found Robin. Uh, the guy who plays Jack Wyatt, Zach Ehrlich, has been a friend of mine since high school, um, and he went to college with us, and, and cool. he's been involved. He was also involved during the early days. We, we, he edited our scripts um, for the really early stuff.
2: How did you research the period-specific sexism? that you were going to like have thrown at that character.
6: I'll be honest, we really don't. We just really kind of interpret like we do a lot of historical research in general and I think we really just think, well, if I was a if I was a woman in that time, it would be terrible. Oh.
4: Hooray. <laughs>
6: yeah. Whenever you think something is happy on a show, you can probably just <laughs> assume it's not actually happy. Sure.
2: So you had written that you you tend to write things ending first.
5: It's the only right? satisfying the way only to write way time to... travel. Yeah, you really sure. have to you have to go with the end first because you have to be able to build to something because you can see, you basically we much like time travel, the effects come before the causes. So if we mm-hmm. know where we're going, we can see a lot of things in and we can heavily foreshadow. So as long as we know where we're going... And we've been working on this story, again, for like six years now. Sure. So uh, specifically the first season, the first maybe string of ten-ish episodes, we've been working on like that mythology intensely, and it's gone through so much revision and so many changes that we really knew it backwards and forwards. And ha! Ha! and you can't really do that with everything. It's like the, <laughs> it's the first album... Like bump, uh, like a mm-hmm. band's first album is always great because they've had their whole lives to work on it, and, and then right. their second album they have a year and a half to do it. And fortunately, we've talked far enough in advance that we don't have to hit that that bump too early on. But it's definitely something that has really benefited us to to making a coherent story.
2: So you're bringing on more writers for season two. How does that? How 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 do you integrate people
6: into? The Dan Misha MindNet. <laughs> it's been a huge struggle. Um, kudos to Slack for letting us outsource that a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, Slack, come sponsor us. Ding! Uh, um, uh, we've really struggled because... the sh- I mean, for five years we lived with it in only our two brains. And, right. I, I mean, you guys don't even want to hear... The, the original stuff that was on college radio, it was oh. utterly incomprehensible. you
5: Oh, but I do, though. Uh, may, it may... was actually incomprehensible by design. Yeah. We are like, let's make something weird, <laughs> and no one will understand it, and they won't listen to it, and then no one understood it or listened to it. <laughs>
6: uh, so, oh, so integrating writers. Um, yeah. We, um, the first new writer who actually came on at the end of season one, um, Julian Mundy, has been a friend of mine. Uh, almost as long as I've been doing audio. Okay. We, I met him around the same time that I started, um, doing audio. Um, so he's just been my friend for a long time and he, he's talked us through, I mean, he's just been a great like third party to like, Hey, we're coming up with weird story ideas. Does this make sense? Does that make sense? Um, and so he knew, he knew the mythology pretty well. Okay. And we figured if we're going to start bringing, bringing writers, let's bring in, julian first because julian's also a writer um he's been working on a podcast concept which uh i'm i'm going to produce when i have more free time but yeah, misha
2: you've got your fingers <laughs> in like every podcast pie in los angeles haven't you
6: um yeah i think so i mean, I'm, I mean I...
2: we should sneak you into earwolf studios get you a piece
5: of that pie yeah but... for real please
6: uh i'm not working with uh jeff heimbuck who does return home but i think he's the only socal audio drama i'm not working on
2: so jeff jeff Heimbuch and uh casey whalen then either oh the, right casey
6: whalen right. is here too and i'm not working with casey Wayland. sure um but everybody else i'm working with us i well, i, I co-created us right so i've been mm-hmm. doing this forever when i got here i uh started working on the bright sessions which has been mm-hmm. fantastic um and i've also started working with uh justin mclaughlin at eos 10
2: how did you meet justin and how did you meet
6: lauren I did the same thing for both of them which is that uh I emailed them and said I really love your show. I'm an audio producer. Do you need help? Uh to which both Lauren and Justin said, "Oh my god, yes, please." <laughs> yeah, no please. one should ever say no. <clears throat> oh god, please. And so I said, "Yeah, sure. I'll I'll help." Um I I don't really want to talk too much about what I'm doing with Justin um mm-hmm. just because Justin is um
2: Very secretive and vindictive. Suffice it to say,
6: he's working very hard on Season 3. Fans of EOS 10, he is working very hard on Season 3. Sure. Um, uh, But I'm working with him uh, fairly closely, and obviously I've been producing The Bright Sessions since Episode 17. Uh, So, Misha, um,
2: let me know if this is an inappropriate question. That's okay. Uh, Your Bright Sessions bio says that you suffer from Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. I do. Which, uh, a disorder whose most visible symptom is joint hypermobility, but also... Mm -hmm includes lots of pain um yes how has dealing with an invisible illness is this okay yeah yeah oh yeah you're good okay how how has dealing with an invisible illness throughout your life affected the way you
6: make or think about art i think that without it i wouldn't have that's not true i was gonna say i wouldn't have gone into art but i don't think that's true now that i've said it out loud um i think that it made me more seriously consider the arts Okay. I think that um, because I couldn't do as many physical activities growing up as a kid, I turned to entertainment as a distraction both from um, the sadness of not being able to do things that my friends were doing, um, but also pain. Um, so I, I was a voracious reader as a, as a young kid. I, I mean, watch TV all the time. I watch movies all the time. Um, I pl- so I, yeah. I played a few video games. I'm not a huge gamer anymore.
2: So this illness kind of made you an indoor kid.
6: Yes. And I think without okay. that, I wouldn't have started. I mean, I was on my laptop all the time, As right? So as soon as I got a computer, I was on it all the time. And that just became my refuge.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool.
6: Thank you. Sure, I'm happy to talk about Ehlers-Danlos. Not enough people are in a position to talk about it. Um, mm-hmm. It's a pr- pretty rare disease that not a lot of people know about. Um, how do you How do you manage it now? As best I can. Um, okay. I talk to employers up front on the first day of my job. I say, "Hey, thank you for hiring me. I need to let you know." Or even when I'm through the hiring process, I say, "Hey, just so you know." Um, Cause I work in live theater and, and that requires you to be able to do some physical things. And I just say, I can't do that. Um, and I'm never sure. I mean, I hope that it's people's kindness being like, yeah, sure. We understand. Um, I understand there's some pressure from like lawsuits and such, you know, potential like, oh, if I don't hire this person because they, they can do some things on some days, I could be Mm -hmm. in trouble down the line sort of thing. Um, and I'm never sure how much of one and how much of the other. So
2: so Dan, uh, you work as a, do you work as a copy editor? Is that correct? I
5: jump around various writing adjacent positions. So I do copy editing. I do technical writing. I do content writing. That's really what I do. A lot of right now is content writing for blogs for money. It's definitely not soul sucking. I love my employers. (laughs) <laughs> uh, but I, I really, actually, since I've been out here, I kind of took a month off and have been working on ours basically full time, which has been nice. Wow. Yeah, I, I had enough saved up, and I can't say that anymore. <laughs> um. All oh, right, because you moved, you moved here not very long
2: ago. You mo- here? You yeah. Moved to Los Angeles not very long ago.
5: Yeah, I moved to to California, and oh god, I think I got here maybe seventeenth or eighteenth of April.
2: Okay. Wow. Yeah, so I oh, am so super recent. Yeah, I just moved. So you had been producing, so you you'd been working together over Skype, so you were still in Cambridge while Misha was in Los Angeles?
5: Yeah. Uh and that was pr- really tough yeah, actually.
6: We, yeah, we we I moved away from Boston from the Boston area um right before we put out the first episode. Wow. <laughs> it was Perhaps a poor decision. Um, Episode 13 that just came out was really the first one that we were able to collaborate on in person since we started.
5: Since episode like 6, I believe, was the first one that was written, or was the last one that was written and recorded before Misha left.
6: It was episode 5, actually. Oh, it was episode
5: 5, so even less. Yeah. And I was bouncing around a bunch of jobs, so I wasn't able to dedicate as much time to Mm -hmm. ours as I wanted, and... I already have a, a banger of a time trying to get any of this done. I have the worst case of a d h d in the world uh oh, no yeah, and uh the end of twenty fifteen was rough for me because i was out because my I was having a lot of insurance issues and mental health care is fun um it's hard to get a hold of it sure. uh depending on your insurance, thanks Disney. What uh, I I have my my parents work for Disney and uh, oh. so I use their insurance. Thanks, Obama. But uh, <laughs> this
2: keeps happening on
5: the show. What does I keep getting? Thanks, Obama, ings on the show. You should have like a
2: a button. We should have like a thanks, Obama. Corner. Well, that
5: one, <laughs> I'm literally thanking Obama because if not for Obamacare, I would not be able to stay on my parents' insurance this long.
2: Uh, the two of you host a second show called Time Lapse, in which you talk about your favorite time travel movies.
6: We have been. It's it's been. Uh, just a little thing that we've been doing while we've been running a fundraising campaign through, oh, through yes. our Oh yeah, what's that fundraising campaign called, Misha? It's called the Hashtag Money is Time campaign. It's being run through our Patreon, patreon.com slash Paradoxica. So we we thought, just as a, like a, a thing to keep up weekly interest in us, because uh, Ars Paradoxica is a lot of work, and the only reason it sounds as great as it does is because I take a month lovingly crafting each episode. Um, sure. So it only comes out one a month. So to, to keep up weekly interest in us and what we're doing, we decided to um, create this little side podcast. Uh, it's basically just like a work cited of like, oh, these are time travel stories that we really like and uh, the, that we really like them is what helped inspire us to make one. Has
2: there ever been a split decision between the two of you with a time travel movie One where, you were, where one of you was like, oh, yeah, th- this movie is my jam. And the other one was like, this is like garbage.
5: We do kind of uh, – I, I have to say no because Misha and I are pretty brain lasers on a, on a lot of things. But we do go back and forth. We debate on whether uh, time crimes is better than primer or vice versa. Okay. Uh, I, think it's, I think it's time crimes. I think Misha thinks it's primer.
6: I do think it's primer, but I'm I don't I don't vehemently stand by that point. I think I could be swayed. Like, maybe give me like ten years.
5: Yeah, I, it's it's the same for me too. Those are both really good time travel yeah. movies.
2: What is it about time travel narratively that appeals to you? What is it about like looking at a story and saying, you know, how I want to tell this in a non-linear way? Like, I want to tell this like five different ways simultaneously. What is it about that that <laughs> Well, that appeals to you as writers well, and
5: storytellers. Non-linear narratives are great. Like we all love our oh god, what's our our ensemble cast, our our And oh, No, give me some quick non-linear. Our Houses of Leaves. Yeah, House of Leaves. Um, oh, the, uh, our, House
6: of Leaves by Mark Z. Danielewski. Just that is hands down my favorite book because it is probably the hardest book to read. Like physically holding it in your hand and trying to absorb the narrative through the words written on the page. The way they're written on the page. I couldn't do it. Yeah, it's
5: my favorite book. And (laughs) time travel combines nonlinear. Time travel makes a nonlinear, puts the idea of a nonlinear narrative into the narrative itself. It is diegetic that the narrative can hop around and move around and change and is mutable. Uh, It's also great because it has this idea of wish fulfillment that you could come in and you can fix your past mistakes. And one of the early things that Misha and I talked about when we were starting the show was that in all of these, in every single time travel story, almost universally, the person who does time travel either comes out worse than they started or exactly the same, except for a couple of... The, uh, uh, Superman does. Superman does time travel and gets away scot free. And Superman, um, in that one Star Trek movie, they have to go back in time and they're fine. But even I- Marty McFly like has to return to a present where his parents are entirely different people and his his world is is totally different. And that's a that's a horrifying truth. So the one time you might think that time travel makes your life better, it totally doesn't.
6: Um and yeah I agree and just that um I we I can't enjoy anything that isn't talking about itself at least twice over. <laughs> I can okay. I I like I need a like a, a certain amount of meta in my life to to enjoy things for some cuz I'm a jerk. Um
5: We are all abeds. <laughs>
6: yeah, that's us. Um we do that with everything all the time. Um and so we wanted to make a story that other people could do that with.
2: So, there's an end, there's an end in mind for AP. Mm-hmm. Do you know how many seasons it's going to be?
5: We have about maybe 4 or 5 seasons of plot that we have considered and that we we can very easily make. Though the way we've set up our our end point, it is not really Trying to, to say as, as little as I can <laughs> while still explaining the thing. Uh, right. This is why I almost don't want to ask questions about um, the show. We
6: have, we, we have stored in our brains about five seasons worth. That said, okay. we have the framework within all that stuff, and especially now that we're bringing in new writers who are bringing us new angles on this story all the time, um, we could go – I mean, conceivably, we could just keep going. Do you have something planned for after ours Paradoxic, <laughs> or is
2: right now all of this just like being, just consuming all of your uh, artistic energy? Uh,
6: okay, so for, um, first I'm going to answer the question, and then I'm going to explain why Daniel just laughed at that question. Um, okay. Uh, the answer is, uh, I have a few other podcast ideas in mind. Um, we've talked to a couple of other uh, content creators about adaptations of things and different genre things. Um my dad works at ESPN, so I've talked to him a little bit about doing, like, a sports drama. That might be cool. Okay. Um, Julian Mundy, who wrote um, episodes 9 and 12, um, has had um, a couple podcast ideas uh, on the side because uh, while he writes our show, he's not nearly as involved in the day-to-day.
5: Misha, have I told you about my, my pitch yet? No, I'll tell you later.
6: Tell me later. Ooh, tell me later. Um, so Tell me later. Yeah, so... So, uh, that's where we're at right now. The reason that Daniel laughed at the question, what happens after Ars Paradoxica, is because we wrote that once, um, where basically, uh, uh, Sally Grissom, rather than getting sent to the past, gets sent to the far future, where, where technology is, like, it's, like, really to pleasing in society, and it's basically magic. Um, Mm -hmm. like, so far into the future that it's basically magic, and... There's like a whole like guild system that runs society. It was basically like a like a you're Divergent, but Sally Grissom was there. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, and um, and we wrote that. We wrote like a whole outline for like a book. It was gonna be yeah, like a fantasy novel. Be a three
5: three part fantasy novel.
6: Yeah. Um, and then and then we just didn't do that because it would have taken more time, and we wanted to actually make the show.
5: <laughs> and not the sequel to the show that was in a totally different format and genre. <laughs> But, yeah, no, we have actually thought about, like, oh, what happens after our ending?
2: Dan, I like how you're, like, Misha and I are brain laser, always focused and completely, like, aligned,
6: and uh, then, then we, you keep on we, saying things. We have the so same whatever. ideas. Uh, one mm-hmm. or the other of us may be more inclined to say, no, that idea's dumb. Like, like it's we, we both have the <laughs> ideas. It's just, to what... Uh-huh. To what level we consider each idea valid may change. Misha, I see from your resume
2: that you experience synesthesia. <laughs> you How does that you manifest looked you? looked
6: at my resume?
5: You know I did.
6: Um, uh, both Daniel and I both have that. And we have the same one, right?
5: Yeah. Really? Yeah, we
6: both have um, graphene color synesthesia.
5: We see letters and numbers Whoa. as colors. Yeah. Uh,
6: and we've had conversations before where we'll go back and forth and be like, oh, so what is two for you?
5: Yeah, oh, it's red. It's right for me, nothing. it's like
6: golden yellow, and like
5: yeah, not it doesn't like. What is the letter S for you?
6: Oh God, the letter S is is also like a sandy yellow kind of. Oh yeah, it's
5: it's golden goldenrod for yeah, me. but so, like so so but we for the have most part they don't. Yeah, we we've talked about that. I didn't know synesthesia was like a weird thing until I was like fifteen, and I read about them. And they're like, oh, that's a neurological thing. And I said, really? I just thought, oh, never mind then.
2: Have either of you ever seen
5: Nabokov's
2: alphabet? No. What is that? It's uh, he did Vlad- uh, Vladimir Nabokov, the guy that wrote Lolita and Ada, Pale Fire, um, was a synesthete, and so he did this book called The Synesthete's Alphabet. It's like a oh. a children's book. It's just his painted <gasps> interpretations of the colors of the letters
6: cool. of the alphabet. That sounds cool. Yeah, it's really it's I, as really an audio lovely. guy, I really wish that I had one of the ones that had to do with my auditory sense, but I don't.
2: Sure. That leads me into my 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 next question. Well actually I have two questions. So okay, so second follow up about your resume, Misha, it says you have perfect I do have perfect
6: pitch. pitch. Can you give me a 440 hertz concert A? Uh I don't have great control over my vocal cords because of the Ailer's Danlos. So that so re- reproducing them is tricky but maybe I can That's an A.
2: That sounds right to me.
6: I think 440 is one octave, one or two octave ups from that. Maybe that's, I don't know, but that, that was not an A. That was damn. I can definitely tell that that was not an A. Uh, yeah, uh, uh, people get really mad when I tell them I'm a perfect pitch. This has been Stupid Human Tricks with David and Misha. <laughs> you studied
2: psychoacoustics at Emerson College.
6: I studied psychoacoustics at Emerson College and Berklee School of Music. What
2: am psychoacoustics?
6: What? <laughs> psychoacoustics is the study of how the brain interprets uh, audio information. Okay. <coughs> so uh, uh, the difference between sound and audio is audio is a signal. It's, it's, uh, it can be an electrical signal. It can be an uh, electrochemical signal in your brain. Uh, sound is the physical vibrations in a medium. Uh, so as soon as the sound hits your eardrum, it becomes audio. It becomes signal again. So mm-hmm. it's the study of where that signal goes and how it gets incorporated into knowledge and memory and perception.
5: Okay. Yeah. Cool. It's what is...
6: super fascinating.
2: What is, what is the one of your favorite tidbits about the way that the human body perceives sound?
6: Okay, one of my favorite tidbits is... Uh, is um, the infrasound phenomenon, whereby uh, the human ear can hear from about twenty hertz at the absolute okay. low end to about twenty thousand hertz at the uh, at the absolute high end, uh, and that degrades over time as you age as well. Um, on both ends. Uh, mostly, mostly on the, the high, high end. end. Okay. It's hard to degrade on the low end because um, of the way uh, the way the brain interprets sound is logarithmically, so you hear more. Low fre- more variation in low frequency than high frequency. Um, that makes sense. Yeah, because of how
2: speech works, I
6: guess. Uh, yes, it. In fact, um, the human ear is evolved to hear babies crying as the absolute loudest noise. Hmm. Um. So, if you've ever considered why, um, like when a baby's crying, it's super annoying. When it's not your baby, um, mm-hmm. that's why. Is because your your ear is specifically trained to hear that louder than literally anything.
2: It's. That's funny because, like, you know, normally on an airplane, I can barely hear the person next to me, but if there's a baby crying twenty rows up, it just like pierces my midbrain.
5: Yeah, that is
6: uh, by design and
2: on purpose.
5: Cats purr at similar frequencies mm-hmm. to babies crying too, because cats are genetically engineered for us to love them.
2: So, Dan, I found your I found your resume. Yeah, also. <laughs> uh, and it says that you spent some time working on uh, data analysis for Amazon's Alexa mm-hmm. product. Uh, Which is the yep?
5: Okay, so you know Alexa is like Alexa is like a Siri or a Cortana, or Mm -hmm. I think Samsung Galaxy has one. It's just called Galaxy. Uh, Fun fact: anything you say to all of those services is listened to by a human being and transcribed by a human being. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. In real time? No, not in real time. But like, it gets sent to a server somewhere, and then someone transcribes it, and I used to listen, take those transcriptions and figure out what the user wanted to do to improve their algorithms.
2: So to just sort of tighten up the experience in case someone asks in the future, like, why does the porridge bird lay its eggs in the air?
5: Yeah, people would ask strange things. Uh, One of my favorite commands on Alexa was tell, tell me a joke. And by God, I heard all of the jokes that Alexa could say. I think they've actually expanded the. Right before I left, they started expanding the, the joke categories. But at the time, there were maybe 32 different jokes. And there were all kinds of strange things you could ask it. Um, and yeah, I, I would just kind of take that and sort of figure out what people were saying and figure out how the system responded. There were a lot of knowledge queries. And so I used to, to figure out how accurate things were. It would mm-hmm. say like, oh, this is how tall this one basketball star was. And if it said five foot three, I would say, oh, that's probably wrong. Uh, so i I had to look up a lot of child celebrities' birth dates, which is i don't know that was just a, a a grouping of queries that I ended up on. I don't know Alexa knows a lot of things both of you have written uh, in
2: various online profiles that you both enjoy cooking um uh, mm-hmm. and I do too and i I was curious about because i think I think you can tell a lot about someone's personality and a lot about the way they think <laughs> about creative work um from the way that they cook. So I was curious, like, what is your what is your approach to cooking?
6: Uh, my approach to cooking is um, just get a recipe and try it out a few times, and then once you know it well enough to, like, know what each of the parts is doing, like, maybe switch some parts or add a mm-hmm. couple parts or take a couple away and start tweaking and messing with it. Um, and I don't know, I, I keep a, a fairly stocked fridge, and have a variety of ingredients that I can throw together on any particular day, I know some tricks here and there.
5: I definitely learned cooking from my, from my family. My parents are both big cooks. My grandmother is a Martha Stewart Supreme. Uh, and, but the, the kind of cooking that my, my family likes to do that I've kind of taken on is an <coughs> idea of uh, culinary experimentation. Uh, finding like a weird recipe and saying, I liquefied popcorn, what is that? I want to try it and kind of going for it. And I think that when I cook for myself, I try to cook without recipes, uh, as as Misha mentioned, once you know all the things in a recipe and what it does, you can kind of go out and and do things. But I like to, when I cook, I want to try new things and I want to be good at old things. Actually, uh, one summer in high school, I spent uh, a couple of months getting really good at cooking hamburgers, like okay. getting my technique down and figuring mm-hmm. out the right uh, combinations of ground beef to use and the best rolls, and I got really good at that. And so I think my my stance on cooking is uh, it's the si- it's, a, it's the perfect fusion of art and science. Like it's just at that midpoint where there's certainly a science to it, there's uh, the application of heat and the way that you mix things and the order of operations of ingredients. And then there's also sort of an art to it of finding that combination of flavors and smells that really make something, turn something from just sort of a food stuff, from just sort of a thing that gives you nutrition to a delicious, satisfying meal. So what
2: I'm trying to connect back to this is the, the degree to which Formalism plays a role in the way that you behave creatively Um, because I think think if you know a recipe and you're familiar with – so if you're familiar with all the tropes of hamburgers and you're familiar with all the story beats of a time travel narrative, you know what the end product is supposed to look like. And then you kind of work backwards from there. Is that kind of true in both cases, or am I overgeneralizing?
5: No, I think that's I think that's appropriate. Um, I think that rules are meant to be broken, but I mean rules have to be learned, and then once they are learned, they have to be broken. And I think that there is a necessity to play with the audience's expectations because mm-hmm. they're always going to come in expecting a certain thing, and they go they're going to have their own baggage, and so. Surprise, in a lot of ways, is delightful, and so trying to find delight in surprising people and challenging them, I think, is very important and very good, Uh and I'm not sure how to link that back to cooking, but that is certainly how I approach uh, writing and producing this show. I
2: have a dumb question about the logo. Okay. Um... Does it have to do with red and blue shifting? Yes. Yes. It does. Oh, that wasn't a dumb question. No, it wasn't
6: a dumb question at all. Um, Yay. I don't, I don't, it's interesting to me because I designed the logo and uh, I designed uh, two previous logos Um, and we felt that this one more accurately represented the science of the show, the Mm -hmm. the in world science of the show. Um, And it's, it's a picture of a tachyon. Which right. is an ar- which is a a particle that uh, moves always, faster than light. It always moves faster than light. It is, um, according to general relativity, you can't accelerate things faster than light. But hypothetically, if a particle were already moving faster than light, um, then it would always move at that speed and never be able to slow past the speed of light. I think.
5: And so you would see it, uh, both its past self being blue shifted and its oh, right uh, red shifted. Yeah. It's past uh, self being red-shifted, and it's future self being blue-shifted. If,
6: if you could see them. They're not real. you could see
5: them. Sure. Except or the, or in our the, oh, show. A tachyon is a hypothetical uh, particle? Yeah,
6: ta- I'm sorry. Uh, a tachyon is a hypothetical particle. Um, it's uh, vaguely theorized in general relativity. A lot of uh, sci-fi uses it to explain either faster than light travel or uh, time travel.
2: When did, you, when did you come up with the name R's Paradoxica instead of questions don't matter, uh, don't actually matter? Okay,
6: so up until... Um, Nash Hightower left the show. Uh, as, as long as it was John Grissom, the show was mm-hmm. called QDAM. Uh, and then when we went back to the drawing board with casting, and we decided, okay, we have to rewrite all the stuff we've already done with Sally, and we can do a lot more with that. Um, and also, if we're going to change the name, now is the time. Okay. So we sat down on Google, and started typing in things that sounded vaguely timey oh and also didn't get any results and got and just went until we found something with no results
2: well folks thank you so much for coming on the show of course this was an absolute pleasure to talk to you thank you for spending your hashtag audio drama sunday hashtag
6: (laughs) audio drama sunday on twitter oh man it's so nice to have like pod friends
0: yeah it is
2: it feels good Thank you for being two of my pod friends. Thanks Aww, for being thanks our for, pod friend.
5: Yeah, thanks for being our pod friend. Thanks for having us on.
2: My pleasure. And thank you for being my pod friend too, listener. Your support, comments, and critiques mean a lot to me, and they affect the show. You can always reach me on Twitter, at Radiodrama, and you can always email me at david at radiodramarevival.com. Now, while time itself might be a limited expanse, bounded only by our capacity to imagine, the time of a podcast is finite, and we must bring this episode to a close. But before I say goodbye, let me say some credits. Now, the music you hear thumping in your eardrums comes to us courtesy of Oakland's own DJ Stranger Danger. Follow him on SoundCloud if you know what's good for you. And now, welcome to ODARP, the office of David's awesome radio pals. Over here, in this corner, is Matthew Boudreaux. I plucked him from the deck of a plummeting, burning airship in 1918. He produces our show. From two shifting sets of alternate realities, I bring you Heather Cohen and Monique Boudreaux, who exist liminally, half in this world and half in the next. I take advantage of their phasing abilities to find the LinkedIn pages of everyone I interview. They're our researchers. A special congratulations, incidentally, to the entire Boudreau family. Monique and Matt's son, Javert, graduated high school near the top of his class this weekend. He received a presidential commendation for Scholastic Excellence, and he got into the college of his choice. Fabulous work, Javert. Sarah Lawrence doesn't know how lucky it is. Finally, our executive producer, Fred Greenhouch, has distributed his consciousness across every possible second in history. He's now, and he's now, And he's now. Forever. Pretty neat, huh? I'm your host, David Reinstrom. And remember, if you've got time travel coupons, you would best cash them in now. Because I hear that time travel will be illegal in the future, so if you wanna...
5: Shit! There he is! Get him! Shit!
6: Bye! Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive's Employee of the Month, two months in a row. Leave a message at the...